You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Mystery on the Roof. Welcome to the fourth episode of my podcast. I'm so grateful that you're here. Um, I also wanted to start the episode off by just expressing my gratitude for all of you. Um, I'm running my podcast through this website called Podbean. Basically, it's like a host, and whenever I uh, download an episode, it just goes to all of the various um, places where you can listen to podcasts. And I'm doing the free one right now because I'm trying to figure everything out. Um, but I do get a little bit of data, and the data that I get is just how many episodes begin and are all the way completed and listened to. And the first week, um, episode one, I got 175 listeners. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow, that's so many people. I'm so excited. Um, and that was in one week. It's gone up since then because I think everybody list- always starts a podcast by listening to the first episode. But um, I, after I released last week's episode, I waited a week and then I was like, okay, I'm going to go look. I'm really scared. I don't know like what the numbers are going to be like. Um, but I had 174 listens on the very first day that the episode was released. And that just like blows my mind. I'm so grateful to you guys. Um, thank you guys for being here and for supporting me and encouraging me. I really appreciate it. Um, it just helps me to keep going and it helps me to, you know, get through. I mean, the research is fun, but it's really long and daunting sometimes. It usually takes me about I don't know, probably between four to seven hours to research and write an episode. And so when I see numbers like that, it just gives me some encouragement and it tells me like, okay, you're doing a good job. People like what you do, so don't give up. And I just wanted to um, say thank you guys for helping me with that and just keeping me going. I really appreciate your your guys' support. So thanks so much. Um, If you've been here for a while and you're having fun, I would love it if you would leave me a review or subscribe to the podcast so that way you'll never miss a single episode. If you're new around here, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad that you found me. We really have a fun and welcoming community of people here who love true crime just as much as you do. So I hope that you feel welcomed. Please feel free to engage on our Instagram at Unsolved. I love, well, I think we all love hearing everyone's theories and opinions on every single case. I know that I gain so many new perspectives from all of you. Before we begin today's episode, I want to cite my sources. Obviously, a lot of my information comes from the episode itself, but I also did some research of my own, as always. Um, This time, I used articles from Reddit a lot of Reddit articles. Reddit is going crazy about this case. Um, MarieClaire.com, BBRFoundation.org, Wikipedia.com, CBSNews.com, Freemason.com, hint, hint, 
npr.org and a book titled An Unexplained Death, The True Story of a Body at the Belvedere by Makita Brotman, which is a super interesting read if you're at all interested in this case, and you can currently purchase it on Amazon for pretty cheap. This episode is titled Mystery on the Rooftop, and it really is a mystery. Usually I have a theory right after the episode ends and after I do some of my research, but even this one, I really had to research. And even still, right now, as I'm speaking to you, I don't know what to make of everything. The episode opens with real footage, not a reenactment, real footage of a man named Ray getting ready for his wedding. I love how they included this footage because it really allows us as the viewer to already make kind of a connection with Ray. Sometimes when we look at a picture or a reenactment, it's hard to imagine that this is a real person, but when you can see them move and you can hear their voice, it really just makes it so, so real. The person recording asks Ray, any thoughts? Ray responds that he's just so excited and he cannot wait to see Allison. Now we cut to current day Allison. She says that getting married in Puerto Rico was the most magical day of her life. There is footage of the wedding being played while she and Ray's brother and mother speak, and the wedding looks absolutely incredible. It's really breathtaking. You can see and hear the ocean in the background of them, you know, reciting their vows to one another and giving their first kiss. It's really a magical moment. Ray looks super excited and Allison is looking gorgeous. They are also both incredibly tall. We learn later that Ray is six foot five and Allison doesn't look short compared to him at all. They never say her height, but I'm assuming she's like six feet or maybe even like six three. Legs for days, girl. The officiator pronounces them man and wife and they share their first kiss and start to walk down the aisle together as husband and wife. Then the cheers fade. Allison says she doesn't know why Ray died. She knows that suicide does not seem practical to her. She says that Ray ran out of the house like he was late for an appointment. She notes, who would do that? Oh, it's 630, don't want to be late for killing myself and run out the door? Just doesn't seem very practical or, you know. Allison has always felt like this was part of something much bigger, that Ray got involved in something that he shouldn't have, and her hope is that someone watching or listening today will be able to provide her with some answers. Ray played water polo as a teen. He even coached it as an adult. It was something he was very passionate about. He was very close to his family. They moved around a lot as kids for his dad's work. I believe his dad was in the military. So they were all very close and relied on each other because they were each other's constant. Ray's mom said that he was always laughing. He loved to laugh and he had a very keen and unique sense of humor. Allison returns to tell us that Ray loved to write. He wanted to be a screenwriter, so they moved to Southern California after they married so that he could pursue his dream. As we know, screenwriting and all things Hollywood and movie entertainment business, it's very competitive. It's an extremely competitive field, and after living there for a while, Ray wasn't making very much money doing it. So he turned to a friend from his youth, Porter Stansbury, who was currently living in Baltimore, Maryland. Porter and Ray were high school buddies. They had played water polo together. 
Porter had grown up to be a big business mogul who was doing quite well. He had started a company, Stansbury Associates, writing financial newsletters. Porter had been wanting Ray to come write for him for some time. And although Ray didn't have any experience writing about finance or stocks, Porter was persistent. And in December 2004, Allison and Ray eventually made the move cross-country to Baltimore. Allison and Ray made a pact that they would stick it out in Baltimore for 24 months, you know, really give it a go, be be super gung-ho about it, and then after 24 months, they'd consider other opportunities for their life together. On May 16, 2006, Allison had a business trip. She had a three-hour drive ahead of her, and she was feeling kind of tired. We'll find out why Allison was so tired later on, but we'll continue on with the story. Ray went downstairs and made her breakfast because she was feeling so kind of sluggish that morning. Allison says it was a beautiful morning together and she looked at Ray and told him, I love you so much. And Ray responded, thank you so much for loving me. I don't really know what to make of this conversation. Did it rub any of you the wrong way? I could totally be reading into this too much, but Allison is making it seem like it's this beautiful, special moment between them. But I personally think it's a bit of a weird response to get from your husband of six months after you've just told them that you love them in the morning. Why didn't he say, I love you too? I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I just thought it was strange and raised a flag for me. Like, I feel like when you say thank you to someone after they say that they love you, it's kind of like that weird dating period where you're not really boyfriend and girlfriend, but you're dating. And so you're like, I love you. It's the first time. And they're like, uh, thank you. (laughs) I don't know. It just reminded me of some awkward relationships that I had back in the day when I was dating, but let me know what you think on the Instagram post. Ray proceeds to tell, to see Allison off to her business trip. After her long day, she checks into her hotel room and she calls Ray around 6.30 and Ray doesn't answer, which Allison finds unusual. They had a house guest at the time, Claudia, who was one of Allison's colleagues. So Allison calls Claudia and Claudia says that around 5.30 or 6, Ray had gotten a call and he had rushed out of the house. Claudia calls Allison uh, a little bit later uh, the next morning and tells her, um, girl, just so you know, Ray is still not home. Claudia catches a flight to go back to her home because she was just staying with Allison while she was on a business trip, I'm guessing, but then she's going to fly and go back home. Allison drives home, meanwhile, calling everyone that she and Ray know. She calls Ray's mother and his brother to see if they've heard from him, and they have not. Angel, his older brother, said he immediately took it seriously because it was so out of character for Ray to do something like this. Angel lives in Orlando, and by 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Angel is on a flight to Baltimore. So immediately, Ray's family is taking this very seriously, which I love because it just proves to me that this is just completely out of left field for Ray to do something like this. His family, I don't know what they're thinking at this point, but I think that maybe they think Ray got into an accident and he's been hurt, but it's just incredibly unusual for him to not come home and to not contact anybody and tell him where he's at. Allison arrives home and finds an open soda, a half-eaten bag of potato chips, Ray's Invisalign's on the counter, 
most of the lights are on, which I found a little bit weird since they had a house guest. I don't know why she didn't turn the lights off when she left, but maybe she was purposely leaving everything as it was so that Allison could see, you know, what's usual, what's unusual, what's not unusual. She runs upstairs and all the lights are on and Ray wasn't anywhere. The family arrives to help and comfort Allison and they get to work. Allison is calling hospitals to see if they have anyone fitting his description. And I'm pretty sure that if somebody had gotten a man who was six foot five entering their hospital, it's not really something that you'd forget. So I think that they would remember. Porter offers a $1,000 reward and gets the media involved. The family is visiting spots that Ray frequented to see if anyone has seen him. They're checking bank accounts to see if any money has been taken out and they can no longer call his cell phone because his cell phone has died by, at the, by this time. Allison says that everything just feels so surreal and it's like a nightmare. We speak to Jane Miller, who was a reporter for a local news station at the time. She became invested in the case because it all seemed unusual to her as well. It has now been six days. Allison and her parents split up to cover more ground, but Allison wants to meet up with them again, so she calls her parents and her parents pull into a parking lot to wait for her to join them. While her parents are waiting in this completely random parking lot, Allison's mom looks over and says, Hey, isn't that Ray's car? And to their surprise, it is. Within 10 minutes, media and law enforcement are swarming the place. The car had been there for six days. They know this because there were multiple parking tickets on the windshield. Allison says she just keeps looking at all the buildings surrounding that parking lot asking, okay, your car is here. Why are you here? What are you doing here? Why would you be here? It was a parking lot in the downtown area, relatively close to Stansbury Associates where Ray worked, but it's also close to a place called the Belvedere Hotel. We're going to be talking about the Belvedere Hotel a lot in this episode, so I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that although the Belvedere Hotel was originally constructed and operated as a hotel, at the time of Ray's disappearance, it's actually no longer a hotel. It is a building filled with private apartments, private condos, private offices. There's like a couple of restaurants. And then on the top floor, there's a nightclub. A law enforcement officer says that they didn't find anything of evidentiary value in the car. It just didn't make any sense. Search groups are sent out to look for any clues. The next thing that happens is that three of Ray's coworkers, which I think is definitely weird that ends up being three of Ray's coworkers to be the ones to find this huge clue considering what's about to happen soon. They find a hole in the roof of a smaller part of the Belvedere Hotel. Next to the hole, there are flip-flops. The thing that makes this already suspicious to me is the only way to see this hole is to be on top of the Belvedere Hotel. And I'm talking on top, on the roof. How is it that these three coworkers just happened to stumble on top of the top levels of the Belvedere Hotel now that we know that it's a private building and they just so happen to find this hole and then they are the ones who happen to report it? It's almost as if they might have known where to look. 
You guys are true crime lovers like me, and so you know that they always look into the spouse or significant other of any victim, but you also know that they often heavily investigate whoever is the person who reports the crime or reports something of intrinsic value to the case, because sometimes the assailant wants the person to be found. And if it's taking too long for law enforcement to find them, the assailant or somebody involved might speed up the process by calling in an anonymous, unusual thing or writing into the media. For example, I feel like we need some answers from these three, but we're going to find out later why it's not going to be possible to get our questions answered. Only further adding to my suspicions. Jane Miller, the reporter, returns and says it was not a big hole, nothing that would raise suspicion to someone. She says that at first when she saw the hole, she assumed it was caused by water damage, nothing malicious, unless, of course, you already knew what it was. The police arrive to the Belvedere Hotel and ask for the manager, Gary. Gary helps them get to the area, which used to be the old pool that has now been converted to conference rooms, but it wasn't used very often. Gary opens the door to the area and he immediately smells decomposition. And then he sees blood along the far wall. Gary looks up and he sees the hole and he's actually able to see the sky from the hole. Ray's family gets the call that they need to join the police at police headquarters. The police then confirm that the body they found was in fact Ray's. The family is completely distraught and confused. We're told there's a common phrase in Baltimore, meet me at the Belvedere. In its original construction and while it was functioning as a hotel, it was a really, really ritzy place. And I think that even after it was converted into um, office buildings and, and condos, it's still a pretty ritzy place. But anybody that was a somebody stayed at the Belvedere Hotel. Now we meet Michael Byer, a retired detective for the Baltimore Police Department. He says the report of a body in the Belvedere Hotel was made on May 24th. Michael responded to the call. Keep in mind that Ray disappeared on May 16th, so it has been eight days that Ray has been missing. The decomposition of the body at this point has destroyed a lot of the evidence. On the 25th, an autopsy is conducted. The report finds that, oh, trigger warning, we're going to be getting into this um, autopsy. So if you have kids in the room or if you're at work or something, you might want to pop in some headphones just so, you know, nobody can else can hear the gruesome details if you're worried about that. But the report finds that Ray has multiple fractured ribs, punctured lungs, lacerations of the lungs, liver and groin muscles, fracture of the right pelvis, contusion of the chest, abrasions of the torso, bilateral clavicle fracture, fracture of the sternum, damage to his skull. The legs have also been broken in two different places. With the extent of the injuries, it seems evident that Ray had fallen from great heights when he came through the ceiling. The big question is, where did he come from? The first theory is that he was pushed, thrown, or jumped off the roof of the Belvedere Hotel. This makes sense. However, we quickly learned that the Belvedere Hotel and the building Ray had fallen into, like where the hole is located, are 45 feet apart from each other. So even with a running jump, according to these investigators, it would be almost impossible to land in that exact spot. 
I also learned from another source that the police attempted to recreate the fall using a dummy and they were unable to recreate anything close to where Ray had landed, especially if we're keeping in mind that while Ray was fit and in shape, he would have been running in flip-flops, only further hindering his running and any jump. Allison later tells us that Ray was deathly afraid of heights. He wouldn't even like climb up a ladder without shaking. So it makes even less sense why Ray would be up there and why he would jump. And you know what? I totally get it. I am terrified of heights. Like I can't even ride on an escalator because I'm afraid that I'm going to fall off the side. So I understand his fear of heights. Another theory is that Ray jumped off of a neighboring parking garage. However, again, from the perspective of the garage, the hole is just too far away. Also, the top of the garage is only a 20-foot drop, so it's feasible to the detective that a person would be able to survive that. But the hole is also 20 feet out from the parking garage, so 20 feet high and 20 feet out. And the injuries inflicted to Ray's body are not compatible with a 20-foot fall. It's compatible with something much, much higher. The third theory is that perhaps he fell off the ledge that wraps around the building of the Belvedere Hotel. The ledges on the Belvedere Hotel are only accessible through someone's personal private property, either a condo or an office. You couldn't just get inside. You couldn't just like walk in the hallway and be like, oh, look, there's a window. Um, unless Ray knew someone who lived or worked in there. The windows in those rooms are half windows and they barely open up at all. I wonder if they checked all the windows. I'm assuming if these are people's personal property and the police would have to obtain permission from the occupants or a warrant to search each and every room, I'm assuming it's possible someone could have refused that they're able to go in, perhaps the person responsible or involved, were the cops able to search every single property that touched that ledge, or did they just check a few and then assume, oh, all the other windows must only open halfway as well? The ledge is also an ornate ledge, so you'd have to be pretty nimble in order to walk it without falling. I suppose it's possible that Ray met with someone in one of those condos or offices and maybe things went south. He attempted to escape by climbing onto the ledge and then fell because he was wearing flip-flops. However, you'd think if you were working or living there at the time, you'd notice a large six-foot-five man walking past your window and it would probably scare you half to death. It's certainly something that you would remember. Michael returns to say that next to the hole on the rooftop, they find Ray's cell phone and glasses, completely unscathed. They assume that if he fell from such a great height, his phone and glasses would probably be damaged in some way, especially considering how badly injured Ray was. I think we do need to keep in mind that this was a 2004 flip phone. If you guys remember those phones, they were bricks. You could seriously knock someone out with them. Seriously, it's not like our smartphones today that fall from two inches and shatter into a million pieces. However, to Mike the detective, the items look staged, like they were placed there after the fact. What, what else is unusual to Allison is that his money clip was missing, and it has still never been found to this day. The money clip was a wedding from Allison, like a wedding gift from Allison. It was something that Ray really cherished and loved, and he always carried it with him. Now we 
meet investigative journalist Stephen Janis. He agrees with all of us that if Ray did fall or was pushed or was thrown off the building, surely someone would have heard or seen something. Shortly after the body was found, Stephen walked through the building and spoke to potential witnesses, but no one remembers seeing him. Ray's brother Angel says that there is no way Ray just walked in the, into the hotel, the, Belved- the Hotel Belvedere, and came upon the roof on his own. You have to get through locked doors, winding hallways, and back staircases. You need like a key to access half of these doors. It's not easy, if even possible, to do this without having previous knowledge of the building. So something Ray would not have been able to do, at least not on his own. Keep in mind, this is private property. I would hope that they don't just let random people walk into the building off the street to roam the hallways. Like, people live here. They want to feel safe. They probably have security guards. Furthermore, for liability purposes, the Hotel Belvedere is not going to make it easy for people to just get access to the roof. I mean, can you imagine the lawsuits? Stephen Janis looks through camera footage at the Belvedere Hotel and doesn't see Ray in any of them conveniently or unconveniently, depending on who you are and how you look at it, the rooftop camera was disconnected that night. Huh, that seems suspicious. Now, whether the camera had been tampered with or footage was erased is unclear, but that's something I would like to know and I really hope was further dug into. Stephen agrees with all of us thinking, really, the night the camera is disconnected, that's convenient. Also, if Ray had fallen or was pushed or jumped, why didn't anyone hear anything? You would think someone would have heard a yell or a crash, but no one ever reported hearing anything. Not anyone at the Belvedere and not anyone who might have been walking around or, you know, hanging out downtown. However, Makita Brotman, the author of the book I mentioned earlier, lived in the Belvedere Hotel at the time. She claims that around 10 p.m. that very evening, she and her partner both heard a loud crashing sound that even rattled their windows. They both looked out the window and didn't see anything. They chalked it up to being, you know, random city noise. They do live in the middle of downtown Baltimore, and they went back to bed. It's important to note that she lived on the fifth floor of the Belvedere with an east-facing window that overlooks the roof with the hole. Although the police claim that they questioned all of the residents with east-facing windows, Makita and her partner claim that they were never questioned, never called by any type of law enforcement officer or a private investigator. Michael, the detective, said no one, absolutely no one, could attest to the fact that Ray had ever been inside the Hotel Belvedere that night. You would think someone would have seen him. Employees guests, someone at the various bars and restaurants of the hotel, but no one saw him. Also, as true crime lovers, we know there are garbage people out there who try to insert themselves in the investigation for attention, whatever, but the police don't even get false tips by like crazy attention-seeking people. They literally get no tips whatsoever. It was determined by the police that it was suicide. And this is unfortunate because after this was made public, the media interest in the case faded. 
Ray's family is obviously frustrated because they don't know of any reason that the police would come to the suicide conclusion. They had already told them that Ray had not been under any mental strain or duress. There were apparently no markers or signs of any type of mental illness. His family says he was newly married. He was excited about life. He very much wanted to start a family with Allison. They were in the process of selling their home so that he and Allison could begin a new chapter of their lives back in Southern California. I also learned from another source that they had an upcoming vacation to New Mexico coming up. No indication that Ray would purposely and intentionally kill himself. He was making plans. He was doing things. So that's why his family is so confused as to how the police came to this conclusion. Allison decides she needs, with every fiber of her being, she needs to speak with the medical examiner who conducted Ray's autopsy. She had a list of questions and she wanted answers. So she meets with the examiner and the examiner tells Allison, I know what they, the police, are trying to do we are not going to close this case. The examiner tells Allison that the way Ray's legs were broken, his shins specifically, are not consistent with a fall, but they did not offer any explanation as to what could have caused those breaks. The medical examiner decides to rule the case as undetermined, basically stating that they don't have enough information to conclude whether it was a suicide, an accident, or foul play. Let's rewind to when Ray was first missing. Allison and the visiting family members turned the house upside down, trying to find any clue that could lead them to wherever Ray could be. It was at this time that Angel discovers a note taped on the back of the computer. Hmm. The letter was printed on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. The words were shrunken down to like size four font. Allison knows that the letter was written around the time that Ray disappeared because they found scraps from the note in the office wastebasket. The contents of the note are incredibly bizarre, but don't take my word for it. I've actually got the note and I'll read it to you. I am going to keep last names out of my telling of this. I'm going to redact them just because apparently since the Unsolved Mystery case was released, Um, A lot of people that were included in the note have been receiving harassment from people, so I just don't want to, like, give them any more headache. So I'll read the note to you, but I'm going to redact those parts. It says, Brothers and sisters, right now, around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Whom virtue unites, death will not separate. That was a well-played game. Congratulations to all who participated. I hope you enjoyed it but it was time to wake up, so here I am. I'd like to welcome those who accepted our invitations for membership during the game. We couldn't have done it without you. I look on this endeavor to find the truth. For its own sake, in accepting this quest for the truth, I hope to awake myself with the help of others into a man ready and worthy to receive it. Members of the council, please note that I will lend peaceful concentration to the traditional responsibilities in light of these proceedings, and I will gladly the standard request of this council within the appropriate time. Again, well done to all who participated. I expect the council has invited all the players who gave their lives to this pursuit back, so they might join us hence. Tom, Rayburn, Blackholder, John, Stanley, fare thee well, Bob. 
Before I continue with my instructions for the council and dates, the prize for my service, I'd like to allow Porter Sansbury to choose his prize. Now, Porter, words by claiming something I'll just take. Now that the game is finished, I expect the council to recompensate those who have given to this venture. Along with myself, these players should be made five years younger by the council. Rivera, Allison, Elena, Rivera, Angel, Angel, Brad, Porter Stansbury. He didn't do it himself. Brothers and sisters, our land of achievements has seen many ideas become new innovations since my game began. Radio frequency identification, digital music players, the symphony, the human genome, genetic engineering, water damage, cloning, the Ford cell, overnight express shipping, Wi-Fi, internet, ethernet, MPEG, JPEG, MP3, AFF, Invisalign, the D, robot, mod, milk. The rights, patents, and proceeds for all of them should have been transferred to me by now. I know that our Porter Stansberry has created a way for you to do so. For future transactions, you should, if any of the properties that I will resume control of, my primary residence, which includes a beautiful piece of property in northern Argentina, and I'm told, pigged mansion Buenos Aires. Well done, Porter. In Europe, you can't visit me at the flat in Venice or Madrid, although if I'm in Spain, I'll probably be at the... In Asia, you'll be able to find me in Thailand. Another job well done, Porter. I will keep the bad houses in Las Feliz, California, and this one house in San Francisco, although I'll be looking for a new place in Baltimore and perhaps some other cities. I'd like to briefly mention some movies, books, and music that I found very inspired and compelling. I'd like to meet any of you who helped contribute to these works. The Matrix 1, 2, and 3, The Family Man, National Treasure, The Da Vinci Code, Eyes Wide Shut, Confessions on a Dance Floor, Demon Days, 10, November Rain, Meet Joe Black, Minority Report, Star Wars 1 through 3, Lord of the Rings 1 through 3, Fight Club 7, The Game, Payback, and specifically let me say that I expect M. Night Shyamalan to continue coming up with great ideas. Great movies. I certainly enjoyed his movies, The Sixth Sense, The Village, The Others, Signs, Unforgettable. And that's the note, guys. And if it seems confusing to you, welcome to the club. His wife, Allison, says that the note makes sense and that the people in movies included are things and people that Ray loved, but she doesn't understand why they're all compiled into a list like this. The line, what virtue unites, death cannot remove, also didn't seem like Ray, so Allison decides to do a little bit of investigating. She decides to Google it, and it takes her to a site about Freemasons? Allison says Ray was always kind of curious in secret societies, which isn't too odd if you keep in mind that Ray wants to be a screenwriter. He's always on the lookout for a good topic to write a movie about. The note continues, I stand before you a man who understands the purpose and value of our secrets. That's why I cherish and value my secrets. Life is a test to see if we can control our spirit. Take care and enjoy the festivities. 
Allison gives it to the police and the police send the note to the FBI for analysis because they have no idea what to make of it. The FBI concludes that the writing was written by someone with delusional thoughts, but it didn't seem like it was of suicide intent. Makita Brotman, the author of the book that I talked about earlier, learns through reading the FBI analysis of the note that the FBI agent said Ray was financially sound. However, she later determines that Ray had recently taken $15,000 from Allison's credit card to purchase production equipment behind her back. In a separate article, I learned that Allison said that Ray was terrible with money. At the time of his death, he was more than $90,000 in debt. $70,000 of that money was work-related that was supposed to be paid back in full by Stansbury Associates. However, even after Ray's death, Porter refused to return those expenses to Allison, and it took nearly 10 years for her to pay back that money by herself. Another thing interesting about the case is that everything seems to have happened, you know, really quickly. Ray didn't have much on him at the time of his death. He left his home in a hurry. He parked in a hurry. Everything is just super rushed. What was that call about? Who called? Where was he going? Based on Claudia, Allison's friend who was staying with them at the time, the call was brief. Ray ended the conversation by saying, oh shit, like in a surprise manner, and then he ran down the stairs and out the door. The police were able to trace the call, and it leads them to Stansbury Associates. Uh, TikTok at Sketch O'Clock? Unfortunately, the call traced back to a switchboard, so they were never able to see from what extension the call came from. Also, hours after Ray was found, Porter, who had been like helping Allison with media and like putting up reward money, he put a gag order on all of his employees, so no one that Ray worked with could talk to the police. What? Porter, isn't this your best friend from childhood? Don't you want to know what happened to him? Why are you not allowing the police to speak with Ray's colleagues who may have valuable insight into what was going on with him the days before his disappearance? What do you and your employees know that you don't want law enforcement to know? I just cannot get over how incredibly sketchy this whole gag order thing is. It's even sketchier when I learned that after this episode was released on Netflix, a publicist from Stansbury and Associates claims that there was never any gag order. I'm calling BS, buddy. Steven, the investigative journalist, tells us that at the time of Ray's disappearance, he was a freelance videographer working for Sansbury and Associates, producing documentaries and conferences for them. Prior to that, Ray was working on a newsletter called The Rebound Report, which is a newsletter that gives you stock tips about companies whose stocks are not doing very well right now, but are expected to do better in the future. Before Ray moves to Baltimore to work for Porter, Porter's company had apparently put out a letter called Pirate Investors that claims there is a Russian firm that is going to discover some uranium, insinuating that you should invest in their stock now because it's going to be going up really soon. However, the tip doesn't work out and investors complain. The SEC files a suit that claims that the firm made up the stock tips. Subsequently, the SEC files fraud charges and fines Stansbury Associates over a million dollars in fines. Porter's lawyers claim that it's their freedom of speech to give this advice, but the SEC counters that you can say what you want, but you know you can't just make up information. 
Part of Ray's job was to come in and kind of clean up Porter's reputation by putting out credible information so that Stansbury wouldn't land in this type of hot water again. The Monday before Ray goes missing, at 1 a.m., the alarm of their home goes off. Allison notices that Ray is not in bed, so she goes downstairs to investigate. Ray comes out around the corner, flying with a bat in his hand and looks absolutely terrified. The next night, Tuesday morning, the same thing happens again at exactly 1 a.m. This time, they notice that a first floor window has been tampered with. That very night, Ray ends up missing. Also, remember when Allison mentions that she woke up that morning feeling very tired? It was most likely because their sleep had been disrupted two nights in a row. What I think we need to be asking, we need to be asking Claudia some more questions. And maybe they did, but they're not sharing it with us. But I would be so interested to know if Claudia experienced any alarms going off on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. If whoever was trying to break into their home, possibly to get to Ray, didn't try that third night. Can it be inferred that whoever it was got to Ray a different way? Is it possible that someone gave up trying to get into Ray's home and instead decided to lure him out using some type of guise? Could this individual have used a story about Allison as bait to get him to leave his house and meet them somewhere? Remember, Allison is on a business trip. If someone was watching the house, they would know this. Whoever it was could have called Ray and told him, we have Allison or we know where Allison is. Meet us here or something bad is going to happen to her. This could explain the oh shit end of the call that Claudia overheard and the huge hurry to get out of the house. Allison believes that whatever the reason, those alarms going off two nights in a row at exactly 1 a.m., she really feels like they're connected to Ray's death. She believes that Ray was murdered because perhaps he stumbled upon some information either intentionally or unintentionally, but Allison hasn't the slightest idea what that information could be. Money, especially millions of dollars of stock money, can make people do some bad things. I mean, if you've been interested in true crime for very long, you know that people have been murdered for much less money than that. I remember reading about a case where a husband was murdered for a life insurance policy worth only $2,000. Jane said many theories were considered when it came to Ray's death. Did someone throw him off? Did he have a gun to his head? Was it some sort of a dare or a game? She never believed he just jumped off. It always seemed much darker than that. It seemed like something was going on that a lot of people would want to try to cover up. Detective Byer was one of the only detectives that believed Ray's death was not a suicide. And unfortunately, shortly after he was removed from the case, Allison was devastated. A few weeks later, she called the Baltimore PD to see where the case was at. And they told her, Lady, you need to get it through your head that your husband committed suicide. Allison was pissed and retorted, I'll get through that through my head. When you show me evidence, that's what actually happened. How rude and insensitive. Seriously, these cops need more training if that's how they're going to speak to a grieving widow. I mean, I get it. You're busy, whatever, but show some compassion. The posture of the police department to this day is that he committed suicide, regardless that the medical examiner made the cause of death undetermined. Mike, the original detective, says the only way, the 
only way we're going to know what happened to Ray is if someone is brave enough to come forward. They can't do anything unless someone is willing to share information with them. Allison breaks my heart when she says, I came to the city with everything and I left here with nothing. She says she still feels Ray's presence in her life, giving her the strength to carry on. Ray's mother says, when someone you love so much dies, a piece of you dies with them. Angel says that the pain they experience in their family is still so raw and it casts a dark shadow on every event that should be happy. They just wish that Ray was there with them. And that's the end of the Netflix episode, Mystery on the Rooftop. If you have any information regarding this case, leave a tip at unsolved.com. Before we end, I wanted to share some other theories that are out there, and there are a lot of theories about this case, probably more than any other case we'll cover from the Netflix series. Most of these theories were not mentioned or discussed at all in the documentary. For example, there is a theory floating around that Ray possibly was dropped from a helicopter, and as outrageous as this theory might seem at first, it might not be all that crazy. A local Baltimore resident at the time posted on Reddit that it was not at all uncommon for helicopters to be heard and seen in that area every single night. There was a hospital in the area. Also, most of us are aware that Baltimore has a high level of crime. I've been there before too, and it's not the safest place in the world. Helicopters are not at all that unusual in its downtown area. Also, another Reddit writer, supposedly a friend of the family, writes that while they were waiting for Allison and Ray's wedding to start, someone arrived by private helicopter. Who was this person? Porter Stansberry. In her book, Makita writes that the room where Ray was found was previously a swimming pool owned by the Belvedere and that many people were unaware that it had recently been renovated into two separate office spaces, One conference room, the one where Ray was found, had been used by a church every Sunday, but shortly before Ray's disappearance and imminent death, the church had relocated to another office building. The other office space was rented out by a catering company who had complained to the owner of the hotel that there was an awful smell in the building. The hotel staff never investigated and assumed it was just bad plumbing or maybe a dead mouse in the wall. Makita, the author of the book, claims after finding and transporting Ray's body to the morgue awaiting its autopsy, the police did not secure the area or chalk where the body had been found. Anyone living in the building was able to come and view it if they wanted to. Makita herself and her partner were even able to access the room without any issues. Makita's book also uncovers that Porter was supposedly out of town at the time of Ray's disappearance. At first, he seems distraught and is cooperating with law enforcement and involved in the search. However, immediately following the discovery of Ray's body, he sends his employees home. He hires multiple attorneys as well as a private investigator. Porter's demeanor completely changes when Ray is found. He doesn't even attend either memorial or the funeral of his supposed best friend. Porter, what the heck are you hiding? While we learn in the documentary that Ray didn't seem to be under any mental duress, Allison said that Ray had experienced some personality shifts after working for Porter. 
he had developed insomnia and had higher levels of stress. Particularly, he was stressed about writing reports and getting things wrong. He was always saying that, I just don't want to get things wrong. I just don't want to get things wrong. Allison says he appeared more agitated, stressed, and happy the way that someone would feel working at a job that either isn't fulfilling or possibly morally and ethically challenging. It is reported that the day of Ray's disappearance, he had visited a Masonic lodge in Baltimore. If you remember, Freemasons are mentioned and quoted in the bizarre note found behind Ray's computer. The individual he met with at the lodge claims Ray seemed calm and just seemed interested in Freemasons. Most people believe that there are officers of the Baltimore PD who belong in the Freemason community. There are also reports that the Belvedere Hotel is involved in Freemason activities and that this is all possibly a cover-up to hide something involving Freemasons. Hmm. Also, back to the note, there is a theory out there in the Reddit world. Someone felt that the format of the note seems particularly unusual. They noticed that if you look at its formatting and trace over it, it almost looks like the word themselves write out help. I'll post a picture for reference because it's kind of hard to explain, but I'll post it on the Instagram page and you guys can have a look. Also, there is a standalone line, one of the only standalone lines in the entire letter that simply says the name Porter Stansbury. Could Ray have been attempting to make a code that was not only indicating he needed help, but similarly implicating his friend? And why was the note written so compactly like why was it so like in size four font is it possible that he was writing information in code when he was at Sansbury Associates printed the paper folded it up super small and put it in his shoes that way he could get through security without being found out we should also look more into the theory that this could have all just been a psychotic break and that Ray did in fact take his own life Schizophrenia on average affects more males than females. The typical onset of schizophrenia is in the late teens to early 20s. However, it is not unusual to see men who experience late onset in their late 20s. Ray was about 32, which would make him an outlier for sure, but impossible? I have a hard time saying the word impossible because I don't want to make a quick assumption. I know in my own life, there was a man that my parents were friends with And he experienced his first schizophrenic episode when he was about 28, 29, I want to say. Everything happened super quickly. He began to show signs on Sunday, and by Tuesday, he was having a full-on episode. This type of an episode is something that can be triggered and come to fruition very quickly. And while there are signs, you have to know what you're looking for, or else you could just write them off as a quirk or stress. And we can't forget this favorite theory. If you look into this case, you are sure to hear or read about the movie starring Michael Douglas called The Game. If you remember, Ray mentions The Game quite a few times in his bizarre note. And if you know the movie, you can't help but see the parallels between Douglas's character and Ray's last movements. The main character thinks he's not living in the real world. His work, a wealthy firm, has inducted him into some sort of a game He believes his life is a game and he's desperately trying to get back to his real life. In the movie, Douglas's character jumps off a building, crashes into a glass ceiling, and falls into a pool. 
interesting that Ray was found in a room that used to be a pool but had since been renovated into two office spaces. Is it possible that Ray jumped thinking that he would land in water? With the person I know from my childhood who experienced a schizophrenic episode, they latched onto the movie The Da Vinci Code, and that's what fueled their delusion. So I don't think it's uncommon for someone with schizophrenia or other disorders involving delusions to latch onto something like that, and then it just continues to spiral. My only questions if Ray did commit suicide, why all the secrecy with Porter and Stansbury Associates? Is it possible that they didn't have anything to actually do with the act, but perhaps Porter and his colleagues ignored signs and that they're worried that they will be held liable or responsible for not reporting these markers to Allison or to, you know, the proper authorities? Is it possible that Ray had initiated some sort of company-wide game? The company thought it was just going to be fun and went along with it, but maybe it was real for Ray the entire time. Maybe things just got out of control, and because Porter allowed the company-wide game, he's worried he'll be liable? We know that Porter's company had recently been involved in an SEC scandal, and they were in the process of trying to recover from it. Is it possible that Porter knew something and was worried his company would not survive another scandal? Is it possible that this is why he hired multiple attorneys, fails to comment and put a gag order on all of his employees just hours after he learned about the death of his friend. Also, if Ray did commit suicide, where is his money clip? Did it fall off as he jumped? Did someone steal it after the fact? I hope one day we all get some clarity about Ray's death, especially the Rivera family. I know his family certainly deserves to know the whole story, no matter what the truth may be. I hope that Unsolved Mysteries providing an anonymous way to post tips might encourage someone afraid to come forward. That's my hope anyway. I think only time will tell when it comes to this case. If you know any information, again, please report it to unsolved.com. Don't forget, I made a post on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved regarding this mystery. If you have any theories you'd like to share, I'd love to hear them. Do you think that Ray took his own life? Do you think that he was met with foul play? Do you think it has anything to do with Stansbury Associates or the Freemasons, or do you think that those are all just red herrings? Do you think Ray uncovered something that he shouldn't have? Do you think the alarms going off at his home and his demise are at all connected or just a coincidence? What do you make of the ME's report? If you like this episode, remember to follow me on Instagram at MysterySillUnsolved so you'll never miss a single episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Join me next Tuesday when we'll discover together, did someone ever place a useful tip? Did justice ever prevail? Or is the mystery still unsolved?